Well, tonight we come to the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel, the much anticipated. If you'd turn there in your copy of God's Word, Daniel chapter 11 and verses 2 to 20 will be our text. We'll explain why not 1 to 20, although those of you that were here a few weeks ago might remember that. But as we come to this, we come to the formal interpretation of Daniel's last vision. That's right, the vision that, as you remember, began in chapter 10 and goes all the way through chapter 12. Not surprising, the chapter uh, breaks are not inspired. We'll see even more of that in a few minutes. But we recognize that in verse 1 of chapter 10, Daniel saw this final vision. And he was overwhelmed by what he saw. It occurred on the third year of Cyrus, which was 536 AD. Now, you all love, and I know carry with you everywhere you go, this wonderful chart that I made for you sometime back. And if you don't have a copy and need another one, let me know. We'll get one for you. But we indicate right here the beginning of the year and which king and and all of the details regarding that chronology. And in chapters 10 to 12 on this fourth vision in the second half of this book, we see that it is in the third year of King Cyrus in 536 AD. And this is very important because in our vision tonight, and you know, you probably think, This guy and his dates and his engineering and his math is going to overwhelm us and kill us. But this is why it's important, particularly as we move into chapter 11, these dates all start to outflow and we see the chronology in what comes forward. So that's why I want to draw it to your attention and why I want you to understand it as well. So as we understand that our vision launches from this date in 536 AD and in the third year of King Cyrus, we see that Daniel had tremendous angst over this vision. He was absolutely blown away by what had happened. So much so that three different times he needs strengthened by an angel, which as we've explained repeatedly, we believe to be the angel Gabriel. He was touched and spoken to in verses 10 to 11 of chapter 10. The angel Gabriel came and spoke with Daniel, which was not enough to fully strengthen him, got him from face down on, on, on the ground to onto his hands and knees, and then he had to touch him to get him upright and erect to be able to stand and to interact. Then we saw him touching his lips in verse 16 of chapter 10. Again, because Daniel was so stymied of what's going on. And then again, touching and speaking to him in verses 18 to 19 of chapter 10. And many aspects of this vision flabbergasted Daniel. There was the the demonic forces behind the Persian and Greek kings. As we saw repeatedly brought forward in the discussion in chapter 10. And how we recognize that the individuals spoken here as the princes of Persia and the princes of Greece are not the kings, not the human rulers, but they were the demonic elements that were trying to empower those kings in order to destroy Israel. And 
the horrific unseen spiritual battle was another thing that was daunting to Daniel. To recognize and to come face to face via explanation from one of the warriors, from one of the holy angels about the war that he's engaged in behind the scenes with these demonic forces. That was a daunting situation. To recognize. But perhaps most devastating was the time frame in verse 14 of chapter 10. The latter days and the days yet future, which you remember as we discussed that, was a term used 10 times in the Old Testament, always referring to the period immediately before the end of time, at the second coming of Messiah. And the daunting part about that yet future time was that it referenced all that Israel was going to go through. The referencing the great extended time of judgment upon Israel. You remember that Daniel's in two halves, chapters 1 to 6 and chapters 7 to 12. And in chapters 1 to 6, we were in the first part of the judgment upon Israel. The 70 year captivity, which Daniel was a part of, which Jeremiah prophesied about, and which was now coming to an end midway through the book. And then the second half of the book, chapter 7, that took us forward and showed us the big picture of the rest of redemptive history from that point in time all the way to the end of time, and then we started seeing pieces of that being added to it. In chapter 8, we saw Media Persia and the Greek kingdom. And then in chapter 9, we presented with Daniel's 70 weeks. And there, Daniel's brought face to face to realize that, no, it's not just 70 weeks, Daniel, but the wickedness of the nation of Israel is now going to extend another 490 years which is going to cover the period up to Messiah, and as we saw, beyond. But there's no indication of what the beyond is. That just that last week of seven years that, that he didn't know about, that we didn't know about, but he realized all of a sudden it was going to be much, much longer. Well, now all of a sudden, in verse 14 of chapter 10, Daniel is told that it's not just 490 years. That last Week that last seven years is going to be all the way to the end of time, all the way to the return of Messiah. And Daniel is overwhelmed because his people, his nation, are going to be under continual judgment and persecution and suffering, not just for that 490-year period, but as we know today, for a period of well over 2,500 years. And Daniel's just knocked down by that. He just doesn't know what to do with it. And then the chapter concludes with Gabriel explaining that after he tells Daniel the meaning of the vision, that he's going back to re-engage in the battle against the demons that are seeking to empower the kings of Media and Persia such that they might destroy Israel. We talked about how that's exactly what's happening in the book of Esther. That Haman, as one of the leaders underneath King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, 
is being empowered by a demonic enemy to wipe out the nation of Israel. Why? Messiah, we know, is already coming. So why these continual efforts to wipe out Israel? Because, beloved, as we mentioned, Israel is the only one that can fill the Abrahamic covenant. They are the only ones that can be a blessing to all of the nations. And so the enemy has sought to continue to destroy them. And you'll remember that verse 1 of chapter 11 is really a continuation of chapter 10. This is no problem as we know that the verses and chapter breaks were not part of the original text and not inspired. And we're confirmed on this detail because of two primary factors. Let's take a quick look at verse 1 where it says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. Two major factors confirm for us that this is part of chapter 10 and not a new vision and not uh, a, a different aspect. The first is the time frame. The first year of Darius the Mede, which is 539 B.C., Remember what I just said. Our prophecy at the beginning of chapter 10 is 536 BC. So this is a historic reference three years earlier to what had happened. Three years prior to the start of this vision. The second confirming element are the pronouns. The first person singular pronoun, I, and the third person, him. The, uh, the This is... It, Identical to the I pronoun in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 10. And you would say, okay, well, but Daniel also uses that word I. But in those cases, it's clearly the angel who is speaking. Also, and so importantly, in every other vision, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, as Daniel introduces the new vision, when he uses the first person pronoun, he says, I, Daniel. When we see no specific reference to the pronoun, we know this carries us right back to the angel that's been speaking, Gabriel. This is further indicated by the pronoun him, referencing back to the last direct third person reference. That's our rule of nearest antecedents, our hermeneutical Bible interpretation rule. When we see a pronoun and we don't know who it is, we back up to the last direct reference. The pronoun him is third person. The last direct third person reference is in verse 21, and it is Michael. So Michael is the one that's referenced in third. And in addition to that, we recognize that clearly Gabriel and not Daniel could go and help Michael. You know, Daniel's a hot mess right now, to use the terminology I learned down south. And um, he's not going to be helped to anybody, but especially to Michael the angel, however Gabriel would. And so we understand that verse 1 was part of chapter 10 or part of that discussion, that narrative. And that brings us to our text for tonight in chapter 11 and our title, Astounding Accuracy and Intrigue. And it absolutely is that. Our text in chapter 11 is some of the most difficult in the book of Daniel for most people to understand. Although frankly, it is some of the most straightforward in the book of Daniel. The problem becomes we're not familiar with ancient history. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I had to take U.S. history when I was in high school. Um, the basketball coach taught it. Um, I learned who the first president was, and I can tell you that. Other than that, don't push me. Well, when it comes to ancient history, we're just a little fuzzier, and it's a lot further back. But that's exactly what this part of our text is about. And so this helps us a bunch. And this is where our little chart comes in. This little third sheet of paper that I've given to you. Keep it handy, particularly it fits nicely in your Bible. Keep it handy as we go through chapter 11. We're going to be using it a lot. It gives us some of the dates that are going to help us understand what's happening in this ancient world history that is being referred to. This is why, again, we continue to provide these helpful resources, hopefully so, this chart that we've given you from earlier in Daniel, and now this particular resource for you to understand what's going on. If those of you at home want this, please send me an email, and I'm happy to provide it to you. There may also be some extras left at church on Sunday when you come. So now that we've given this other reference sheet, we go through chapter 11 so that we can discuss these things. And to give you some incredibly specific details about the historical event of the divided Grecian Empire. And that's why I've given this title Astounding Accuracy and Intrigue. And it's also from where our theme comes, three revelatory stages affirming to you God's sovereignty. Three revelatory revelatory stages affirming to you God's sovereignty. And as we think about those, this takes us to our first point, the intermediate action. The intermediate action. Let's read our first verses and talk about them. Beginning in verse 2 of chapter 11. Follow along in your copy of God's word. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of the princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. And his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Verse 2 begins with Gabriel's former explanation of the vision. Gabriel began by affirming the authenticity of his, illust- of his explanation and, and now I will report to you the truth. Now we want to understand as well as we come to this text that what we've got is Daniel's final vision and we've spoken about that a bunch. So it was all future, all prophecy to Daniel but to us it's all history. So as we look at the historical events of the ancient world, we can specify with detail so minutely and so amazingly 
And this is what I want you to see and what you'll note on that sheet that I've handed out. But Gabriel begins and, and tells him that now I will report to you the truth. We're so familiar with words like that, aren't we? You know, from our secular world that seem at best trite and at worst uh, a flat-out acknowledgement that what's going to be said is nothing but a lie. Every politician seems to say this, don't they? Now this is the truth. Right. So we want to ask, you know, why would, why would that be included here? We might be tempted to transport our experience into the text and even question, why does he use that term? Because it makes it question, is it even truth? Or, or maybe, wouldn't it be better if he didn't even use it? The answer is no. It would not be better. Not only is it God's word and therein is holy and perfect and inerrant and inspired, but... Understand what it means. When a man tells us that this is the truth and we find out that it is a lie, what does that make him? A liar. That's right. No surprise. All men are liars. We have all lied. I have lied, you have lied. Karen and I were speaking about just this weekend, even those who don't quite tell the whole story, that that really is a lie. You know, I didn't say anything that was a lie, but you didn't say the whole truth there, and it really was a lie too, because you were deceiving by not giving the whole story. You want to, this is the situation with all men. This is our tongues. They just spit stuff out, and you're like, where did that come from? Anybody ever have that happen? You say something, you're like, "I, I can't believe I just said that. Oh, well, if you want to find out a little bit about the tongue, go read James chapter 3 and, you know, be ready because it's uh, not an easy chapter. But when the Bible says this is the truth, it becomes an even more powerful authentication because, beloved, if even one word in this book is a lie, then the whole thing is a lie and the whole thing is to be thrown out. And yet there is no lie in here. It is all perfectly consistent and perfectly accurate. Romans 3, 4, such a wonderful verse, tells us, let God be found true and every man a liar. Well, every man is a liar. And also, God is always true. And the truth of these verses prophetic to Daniel and historical to us are so astoundingly accurate they cause us great intrigue and to affirm for us God's indisputable and undeniable sovereignty. And it begins with the statement in verse 2, Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. We know behold means that it's time to slow down and to pay attention to what's going on, to examine carefully. The clause begins three more kings. What does that mean? Three more after the current king. Back to chapter 10 and verse 1, who is Cyrus. So three more kings will arise after Cyrus. Darius the Mede, who is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 11, was three years prior And our vision again began in chapter 10-1. 
So who are these three kings? It's not on your sheet, but you might want to write it down. It will just cover it here, and then the rest will be there. The first, Cyrus, as we mentioned. Again, Darius the Mede was not a king, but was a co-regent and ruler in Babylon. So after Cyrus comes the king Cambyses. If you want to write it down, it's C-A-M-B-Y-S-E-S. Cambyses. Cyrus ruled the empire from 539 to 530 AD. He actually began his rule in 559 BC, which we have on this sheet for you, so you know it's right there. But keep in mind, he was only the ruler of Persia at that point. They had not conquered Babylon, so that conquest was in 539, and that was the beginning of the Media Persia dynasty. Again, as your chart shows you. Cambyses ruled then from 530 to 522 BC. Again, you note the dates on your chart, so you might want to take mental note of these or write them down. Remember, uh, it's going, as you think about BC, we're going down in the progression. So for us, we go from year 530 to 540 to go up there. It's from 540 to 530. We're coming down in numbers with the forward progression of time. So Cambus ruled from 530 to 522. Following Cambus, the second king was Smyrdas. Smyrdas, S-M-E-R. D-I-S, Smyrdas. He ruled for less than one year in 522 BC. The third king after Cyrus was Darius I. Darius I, who ruled from 522 to 486. Near the end of his reign, Darius had launched and failed a military effort against Greek. Greek was, Greece was just a tiny little nation. But the Persian kings had a lot of trouble with them. We'll see more of it shortly. Verse 2 goes on to speak of the rich, strong fourth king who is next, who is Xerxes I. X-E-R-X-E-S. Xerxes. Also called Ahasuerus. That is his Aramaic name, which we see him described at the beginning of the book of Esther. He arose his entire empire against Greece. That again is the book of Esther. Do you remember Esther chapter 1? What happened with Esther? What, how did Esther become queen? The former queen was called to the big banquet hall where the king had brought in Kings and satraps and governors from every province, which as you remember from our discussion on Esther, was 122 different nations. It talks about the king being rich. Guess what? Even in our world of government, you want to bring in people from all over the world, it's going to take some money. His riches were part of why he was able to bring everyone in to this meeting. So he has great wealth, and Xerxes reigned from 485 to 465. These are the four kings of verse 2. And for 132 years after, Persia would have four more kings. There would be Artaxerxes, 
There would be Darius the second and Darius the third. And by the way, these are the kings of note in Ezra and Nehemiah. Notice the connectivity, and we've spoken about this before, so I won't belabor it at this point. Then in verse 3, a mighty king will arise. Literally in the Hebrew, and the king of vigor will arise. A very special designation about the strength of this king. This is the last great king over the entire ancient world empire that would ever exist prior to the Roman Empire taking domination. Remember all the things we talked about as we described how much different the Roman Empire was than Babylon, than Media Persia, than Greece. Those were all animals, fierce animals. But Rome was this metal beast with these teeth of steel. So there's a very different thing happening when the Roman Empire begins. So this king would be the last king of the empire before Rome. He is the one who will do as he pleases, per verse 3, with his great authority. Well, the king of verse 3 is none other than Alexander the Great, who you see at the top of your handouts. We see the time of Alexander's reign is from 336 to 323. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So as Alexander the Great began his rule in 336, he did so by taking over from his father, Philip II of Macedonia. This is a very important aspect because Philip of Ma- the II of Macedonia was the king that Darius III attempted to come in again now for the third time actually as the media Persia empire attacked Greece. And again, this massive worldwide empire gets beaten by this tiny little country. And this has a huge impact on all that will go on in the years ahead. So in 334, Alexander the Great, after taking the throne in 336, In 334, he launches a full-scale, all-out military attack against the Media Persia dynasty. Okay, this is like, um, you know, I I don't know what, Costa Rica coming after the United States. You know, just like, come on, folks. You You can't even get on the same field. But that's what happens. Alexander Great... The great summons his army, comes up with his strategy, and he starts into a conquest to take down Media Persia. And incredibly, in three and a half years, he conquers the entire ancient world. Never before and never since has any kind of military conquest like this occurred. The only thing that even touches this is the change that happened in World War II when the United States bombed Japan. That changed the tables, but it was still not in the time frame nor near the aspect of what Alexander the Great did in three and a half years of conquering the entire modern world. A victory of such magnitude that again, nothing before or since has rivaled it. Alexander the Great's power was so massive that the Hebrew of verse 3 says, and he will rule with great sovereign authority. 
you don't see that word sovereign thrown around our Bibles a lot. Because it, re- it refers to one who is sovereign over all. God Almighty. But here it is used to give us an inkling of the authority that Alexander had. And his conquest confirmed this. And the word sovereign authority, again in Hebrew, aptly states this true condition. Something was unique about this guy. This just didn't happen this way. God's sovereignty is all over Alexander's victory. It's evidence in both the way and the effect of his conquering. The way of his conquering was like nothing that we'd ever seen in, in warfare. Alexander would go into villages and he would capture the entire village. In ancient world, a lot of times what would happen, they'd just slaughter everyone. Alexander didn't do that. He took the women and children and he moved them aside and he took the men out of the city and he said, here's your choice. You can serve me or die. So here's the sword or here's your induction into the Greek army. And as he did that, he left Greek soldiers behind So that the men would have control of the city and they would begin to cohabitate with the women from this city. And it would force the Greek language into that city. In three and a half years, Alexander the Great conquered all of the modern world and replaced all of the men in the majority of those cities and completely replaced the language. Hmm. I wonder what would have happened if one language was now over the entire world. Do you think maybe God might have had something to do with that? Didn't he do something back in Genesis 11 about all the people with one language? He said, no more of that. So if he's allowing it now to come together, the point is that when the New Testament and when his son came to this earth, the entire known world spoke and understood one language. Yes, they had other main dialects that they had all spoken their whole lives, but they all knew Greek. So when Christ came to the earth, God supernaturally ordained it such that all would understand the language that the story and the truth of Christ and the apostles would be written in. Fabulous to recognize that. So not only the way of how he conquered and the effect of the Greek language. However, Alexander the Great's reign was very short given its power and vitality as verse 4 reveals. Alexander the Great would die in 323 AD at the age of 32 years old. That is incredible. Not only do we recognize that he was 21 when he began to conquer the world and did so by the time he was 24, but he's dead by the age of 32. The text tells us that, um, that he would not, that his own descendants would not have a part in ruling the kingdom. That's how things usually went, right? The king dies, his son comes in. This is what we see in Israel. This is what we see throughout the modern world or through the ancient world. In Babylon and Media Persia, that, that's the way things happen. Alexander, it's not that he didn't have sons. Some commentators have said so. He did have two young boys. They were both put to death immediately after his death to keep them from stepping in to rule. 
So, the kingdom is divided between four of his generals. The name of these four generals, two of them you have on your sheet, which are Seleucus and Ptolemy. The other two generals are Lysicamus and Cassander. Not important that you know those other two. Lysicamus, Cassander, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And these are the four horns, by the way, of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 8. So these four are spread out in the various regions called the four points of the compass. This is literally in the Hebrew, the four winds of heaven. As it's also translated in the Legacy Standard Bible and the ESV and most of our other modern translations and is a, a better rendering of the text. We see the, the same phrase used in Daniel 8.8 8 and in Daniel 7.2. This doesn't mean, and, and kind of it's a little misleading from the New American Standard, the four points of the compass, like one was north, one was south, one was east, one was west. Uh, that, that wasn't it at all. Rather, it was just talking about they all were from various regions, various regions, and, and represented different parts of the entire empire. So this is, again, the, the region that these four men had. Now, this should not be understood, again, as four literal points of the compass, but as general regions. Then in verse 5, we get the final verse of our first point, the intermediate action, where it says, Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of the princes who will gain ascendancy, ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be, a, will be great, excuse me, will be a great dominion indeed. This is where we begin to see our chart from today coming into action. And I want to explain a little bit about that for you so you'll understand what you're seeing in front of you. The king of the south is the king of Egypt and that is the Ptolemies. So when you look on the left of your chart and you see the Ptolemies, these are the kings of the south. Now, we're going to continue to see references to the king of the south six times, in fact, in our next verses. And it's not going to be the same king, but it's going to be from this lineage of the Ptolemies. And we'll explain which ones as we move along. We're also going to see the king of the north will come in. And that king are the Seleucids. The Seleucids. And we'll talk about the different uh, kings, the individual kings that are described per the time period. You're starting to see, I think, why the time period becomes so important in our discussion here. Now, when they're called the king of the north and the king of the south, the Ptolemies, the king of the south, were in Egypt. The Seleucids, the kings of the north, were in Syria. That's how I help myself remember Seleucids in Syria both with S's and so they are the kings of the north but what reference is this to to Israel Egypt is immediately south of Israel Syria is immediately north of Israel and this becomes such an important consideration for us as we recognize these terms the prince who will gain ascendancy over Ptolemus, over Ptolemy, is Seleucus the first. Now, we'll see much more on this in the verses ahead. 
As mentioned, these four kings are not specifically directed per the compass as we might think of. But we have already seen the kings of the south, who are the Ptolemies mentioned. They'll be, again, mentioned many times more. So also with the Seleucids, the king of the north. And as that north and south reflects to Israel, recognize what's happening for us. I've mentioned before how important Israel is. Why did God take the nation of Israel and move them to this tiny little country where the Canaanites were and the Girgashites and the Hittites and all of the others? Because this country not only is a rich, fertile country, not only has some of the best forests adjacent to it in its northern region, but this country is a land bridge. A land bridge. If you picture the nation of Israel, this is the western border, my right arm here, and this is the Mediterranean Sea out here. On the left, this vertical border sits on the edge of the great desert. Out here is the Arabian Desert, and there is nothing out there, and there is no way across it. This leads out to Iraq and Iran and to Jordan and out to uh, Saudi Arabia. You can't get from the north to the south without going through Israel. Alexander the Great's dead. His kingdom is divided up into four pieces. Do you think those guys were all happy with their share? <laughs> no. No, I want it all. I'm who the man? I'm the man. And I'm taking it back from those other guys. And we're going to see how that all transpired. But needless to say, the king who possessed Israel had a huge tactical advantage. He could have all his armies behind and they could come to Israel. And it was like, you know, in the Old West, you see those movies where they had to come through the big gully with the big cliffs on the side and they just ambush them. They just throw rocks down on top of them. They just wipe them out. That's kind of like Israel. Israel's only 35 miles wide and 120 miles long. How much army does it take to cover that? And by the way, it's crazy up and down. There's a few roads that run north and south, but that's the only place you can go north and south. You cover about three roads in Israel, nobody else is going anywhere. You've got the lowlands that run down to the Mediterranean Sea. Those you couldn't move an army across. You've got the Jordan Rift Valley, 5,000 feet from Jerusalem down to the bottom of the Jordan Rift Valley where the Jordan River is. No moving troops up and down through that. They'd be wiped out. So you've basically got the king's highway, as they call it, right through the center. So if you possess Israel, you got it all. And these guys all knew that. So there was huge warring that was going on through the nation of Israel. So these four divided entities all want control, and they all want Israel so that they have better protection. Let's take a quick look at the top of our table and the dates that are there. Ptolemus I is listed as ruling from 323, the year of Alexander the Great's death, and he was Alexander's most trusted general. And he was given the region of Egypt and the right to rule it. And he had no problem controlling Egypt because it was really only accessible through Israel. However, another leader... Antigonus, who had taken over Asia 
the northernmost parts of Alexander's realm, he had started to come down into Syria. Now, he is not one of the names that I gave you in the first four, and you'll see why in a minute. But he had come in, and he had started moving in on everybody else's turf. He'd come into Macedonia. He'd come in to Syria. And he starts moving these men out. In fact, Seleucus had to take refuge down to Ptolemy, as they all did. And we'll see more about this, uh, about this group that comes together, this alliance in verse 6. And it is Ptolemy, or excuse me, Seleucus I, who is called the prince who will gain ascendancy in verse 5. Now you notice that the time of Seleucus' reign doesn't start to 312 B.C. So it doesn't start for another 11 years. We'll talk about why that happens and what went on in those 11 years as well. So you understand all of the time frame of this. And this is also wonderful because we have so much extra biblical historical data on this. All kinds of books. They weren't books. They were stone tablets in those days. They've now been turned into books. But there are all kinds of archives from this period that help us understand all these details. Well, we'll get more into this alliance in our next point. But already we're seeing that the prophecy that was given had astonishing accuracy. And that that creates for us a tremendous understanding of God's sovereignty in all that he is doing in these events. And there's much, much more we're going to get into as we move through the rest of this text, which is ahead. And Lord willing, we will dive into that next week. So... One thing that would be super helpful, keep this with you, get out your Bible map and get a little picture of what's going on in the ancient world. Look at Israel, look at Egypt, look at where Greece is, look at where Asia is, look at where Syria is, and it'll help you put a picture in your mind of where all of this massive war is going to take place over the next verses. All right? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you because, Father, you've given it to us so that we would understand, so that we would know your perfect love, so that we would recognize, Father, your sovereignty and your glory and your absolute control over every element of this earth. And so that we, Father, in understanding that, could have peace so that we would understand that no matter what happens in our lives, Father, whether it be physical affliction, whether it be emotional or financial struggle, whether it even be the spiritual struggles that we face every day, recognizing our sin, that we would know that your word is truth, that you are sovereignly guiding And that, Father, you are the one who has called us to yourself so that we would be able to understand these things. Help us to recognize the beauty of your Son, the glory of how he has been proclaimed for us, how Jesus of Nazareth became the one that you sent, the sinless one, the God-man who came to redeem us from our sins. Father, we know that it's you and you alone who are working out this perfect plan. We're overwhelmed that you've been gracious to draw us to see it and to draw us to yourself. 
Now, Father, continue to glorify us as we study these texts. And as we go to our homes tonight, guide us safely and help us as we come back together again that we would glorify you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.